If you have a Bible, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are going to conclude today a series called A Theology of the Body. And really what we've done is we've taken three weeks to look at our bodies and how this connects with God's work in the world and the scriptures. So two weeks ago, we came around a teaching that looked at how we view our bodies and how often we're shaped by a lot of like interesting theology within the church around disembodiment, but not only that, that that really kind of came out of a lot of the Gnostic thinkers early on. Plato believed that the, the body was like a prison, a prison house for the soul. And so we have these views around our body that our bodies don't matter, and yet actually when you look at orthodox, what the scriptures lead us in its narrative, our bodies, well, you keep hearing us say, you don't have a body, you are a body. Jesus, right now, exalted in glory, has a body. And you and I will have a body, any Sandlot fans? Forever. You guys are too young for the Sandlot? Have you watched Sandlot? Should we shut the teaching down right now and just put on the Sandlot? Um, <laughs> come on, come on. Come on. What's it called? Ah, oh, I just, we need to close in prayer. Okay, don't worry about it. My, my week has been ruined, but other than that, don't worry about it. Um, but uh, just the reality that we will, we will be in a resurrected body forever. It's not, something we, uh, it's not something we have. It's something that we are at our core. So we came around that. Last week, we looked more in depth. There was great feedback, had good feedback as I was kind of sweating under my arms as we talked about trauma and how trauma is not just something that we, like, goes on in our minds, but trauma is deeply embedded in our bodies. We talked a little neuroscience and how our bodies work and the importance of understanding that and how trauma works and how we can heal from trauma in some really important ways. And I just honestly heard some great, just thank you for the feedback and um, just trying to share this in the context of the church trying to make it not overly heady or out there, but um, I know it resonated with many of us as we think about our own stories and how that plays, that the body keeps the score. Our body remembers every experience, every emotion we've had, and so it helps explain our body responses and how we respond to things, and also hopefully a little glimpse last week into even us as a community, how we can kind of live this out in being a safe, kind of trauma-informed community. Now we're going to land the plane and talk about sex. Thanks for coming. It's good. <laughs> like I came on sex week. You did. Welcome. Uh, obviously, a, a little bit of a trigger warning. I know there's brokenness from left to right in this area. I understand that. I wanna, we want to make that clear. I understand there's pain around this area in this room. You know, we've been kind of peering into the garden narrative and keep, we keep kind of coming back to this idea that rebellion through proto-human in the garden leads to pain in our relationships, broken and abused sexuality, frustrated, unsatisfied work, and ultimately the breakdown of our bodies. And the Bible talks about what we do with our bodies and the importance of that. Now, this is not going to be a sex education class 
you have all probably heard the cringeworthy sermons that just are like, what, what are we even doing here? This is not what, we're going to do theology here and look ultimately at an important aspect of bodies within the church and what the first century writers in the way of Jesus thought and what it means for us. Okay? Make sense? How are we doing? You sweating under your arms too? Or are you good? You good? You can leave too if you want. I mean, it'll be noticeable, but uh, I'm just joking. Just to add anxiety, I'm just joking. Um, we're going to get to Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 in a second. Um, the word sex, you know, scholars believe that this word is related to the Latin word secare which means to sever or to amputate or to disconnect from the whole. And really, in light of that, this is helpful because when we look at it in light of that, our sexuality has two dimensions. Our awareness of how profoundly severed off and disconnected we are. This is what it reminds us of. It also reminds us that our sexuality is all of the ways that you and I go about reconnecting right? Severed reconnection. The vision we actually get in the garden narrative with proto-human is that they became one flesh. This is the, the picture. The Hebrew word is akkad. Can you say akkad with me? Just because you're all Hebrew scholars. So this word, actually, I was really happy to re-engage this word this week. I've done these, some of this teaching maybe six or seven years ago. That word akkad means glued together or fused together at the deepest level. Uh, I've come around some other scholars over the last couple of weeks, and I like how they point out that this may not necessarily, a cod may not be the sex act as much as it means kind of kinship and, and a coming together, a, a glued together proto-human, like opposite kind of coming together. I like Keller's vision of uh, what's happening here, that like opposite are coming together in marriage. I like the idea of kinship or family because it shows the importance not just of bodies coming together, but much more on a deeper level what marriage means in lives being glued together. So this is what we get. Again, rebellion turns this on its head. What was meant for good, like in the garden, sex and union was meant for, meant for good. And we know that if you look all around us, left and right, this is where brokenness is seen at a visceral level. We see it all around us. Sexual abuse, the way in which we use our bodies at times in unhelpful and unhealthy ways. And one of the things that Paul wants to do is just remind the church in Corinth, because there was all sorts of funky stuff happening. If you actually read it, and this is in your Bibles, there is a dude sleeping with his stepmom in the church, right? So like, you're like, that's in the Bible? That's, that, that's there. Um, I love how people idealize the early church. I just want to be like the early church. I hear people say this all the time. I'm like, have you read about the early church? Like, have you read about these people? And I get we're going towards something when we talk about holiness and justice and righteousness, for sure. But also, have you read about these people? And so Paul is correcting. Now listen, this is very new to them. We have a couple millennia on our end of sorting this out. Um, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 6.12. He says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial I have the right to do anything, again in quotes, Paul's quoting, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
By his power, God raised the Lord. Interesting, listen to how Paul connects this to what's happening in the church. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do, and then, again, right, we throw this verse around all the time. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two what? Will become a cod, one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality, Paul says. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in, in you whom you have received from God? Listen, you are not your own. Brothers and sisters, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, what Paul is kind of engaging here in the first century is, is something I think we have to look at in our own moments. Brothers and sisters, are we just the sum of our urges? Like, are we just kind of animals in heat, right? Are we just kind of the sum of how we feel? Or is there something more kind of going on in what Paul is saying? Well, I think there's something more going on. I actually am very convinced, and you can disagree with me on some of this, but the early writers, um, sorry, the contemporary writers of the first couple centuries of the church Guys like Rodney Stark and Tom Holland, no, not Spider-Man, another guy, scholar. I've engaged these guys. Tom Holland's not even a Christian, but he writes about the upheaval in the Roman Empire that these Christians brought, that these, these Christians, this little community of people at resurrection in homes, it began to explode all over the Greco-Roman world. Why is it? And this is just my summary of their work. The church lived different with their stuff and their bodies. The church lived different with their stuff and they lived different with what they did with their bodies. So are we just the sum of our urges? In the ancient Greek world, people would often use a phrase to describe this understanding that we are just our urges of what it meant to be human. And you heard Paul quote it here. Paul is taking something familiar in their culture that people would say. They would say, food for the stomach and what? Stomach for food, baby. So what they believed is they understood a person to basically be a collection of physical needs. You're hungry, there's food to satisfy your hunger. You're tired, thirsty, ETC, that's what it says in my notes, whatever it is, you just go for it. And so what they did is they concluded that sex is just like food. And this was rampant in the first century. You're like, you should, you know our culture today? Go back and just read about Greco-Roman culture. If a man was hungry, he would go to a prostitute, literally saying in that day, food for the stomach. And so Paul actually deals with this, right? When he says, do you not know that your body is a temple from God? And if you are in the way of Jesus, listen to the provocative language, you are not your own. And so I know there's lots of talk about sexuality in our moment and in our days and wonderful, great. But a lot of times we don't dial into the fact that when we come into the way of Jesus, we kind of lose ourselves. We are no longer our own. 
You know, a temple in the first century and beyond in antiquity was a holy place. This image for temples doesn't mean a lot for us because there's, you know, every time we <laughs> drive, sometimes we'll drive down to my parents who live on the east side and we'll drive down, what's the street? Springbank into Horton. And there's the, the Buddhist temple with all the statues out in front of it on the way. And so my kids are always just like fascinated by this, this kind of temple at a, at a crossroads. But like for us, it really, for a lot of us, it doesn't maybe speak, but Paul's language here in the first century, the people would have known it. Paul is using this image to challenge their idea that a human isn't just a collection of their urges and needs to come before God with their bodies, that God actually resides in us. We are not, we don't have a body, we are a body, and what we do with this body is uh, important in its sense of us being a temple. And so he's trying to open up their eyes to a higher view of what it means to be human, and he's asking, asking them to consider that there's more to life than the next fix, right? Now, one of the things, just before we read what Paul kind of expounds on this, the, chap- the next chapter, uh, chapter 7. You hanging in there? Everybody doing okay? <laughs> yeah, sex talk. You're like, yes, all right, church, woo! All right. Um, one of the questions we have to wrestle through is does God, because here's the, here's the tension we feel. God has a low view of sex, right? The rules the patriarchy we see in scriptures, all of this stuff. We have to just wrestle with this. Does God have a high view or a low view of sex, right? Um, I'm going to read you a couple Old Testament passages. Just listen to what the scriptures say in the Old Testament. Ready? I know you're just so ready for this. Are, are you ready? Are you ready? Can I get a little, like, can you validate me a little here? Are you ready? Okay, all right. If a man seduces a virgin, all right, this is what it says. Exodus 22, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Exodus 22:16. Or Deuteronomy 22, right? If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found... Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, as you do, and, shall, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Now you read these and you're like, this is barbaric. This is cr- crazy, right? Um, I like what Rob Bell, the, the artist formerly known as Rob Bell, he says this. He says, obviously... We're repulsed by the inhumane treatment of women in these passages. And at a first glance, it seems there's nothing remotely redeeming about these laws. But the Bible was also way ahead of its time. In that day, women basically had no rights in the ancient Near East. A man could do anything he wanted with her. He could uh, rape her. He could be on his way. He was free from the consequences of his actions. And a woman who had been raped was considered violated and unclean and would often be considered unworthy to be anybody's wife. But this passage essentially says to the man, you want to have sex with her? Then you take her as your wife. You take care of her, provide for her needs, fulfill your duties as a husband to her. She is your equal and you will treat as such. And so the wrestling that some of us feel in our moment, ah, oh, the restrictions, the Bible, the old school, I get it. People, I, I understand, I get it. I get the, the tension here, but I would just say that actually the writers of the scriptures 
are in its context, and especially Paul, is actually way ahead of its time. And so the Bible actually has a beautifully high view of sex and sexuality, and I think that needs to be embraced and thought through. Now, some of you are thinking about um, kind of marriage, dating. You know, we often talk about the one. Have you heard of this? That, that there's just like one kind of mythical kind of thing out there. Maybe uh, there's somebody out there, this, this, this one for me. You know, this long-standing urban legend that there is a mythical creature out there somewhere, probably next to a unicorn, who's to complete you. Is this, this out there? The answer to this, I would say, is No. This idea actually comes from Greek mythology, especially from a guy named, who we've talked about, Plato, uh, in his writing, the Symposium. According to Plato, humans were originally androgyn, uh, andro, help me out, androgynous, thank you, that's my like five or six hours of sleep coming in there. Each with four, so Plato, androgynous, believing that each uh, had four arms, four legs, two sets of genitalia, male and female, and one had made up of, one head made up of two faces. These four-legged, two-faced humans became a threat to the gods, Plato thought, but the pantheon didn't want to destroy them, and if they did, they would lose their worship, right? So this is a problem. So Zeus, the king of the gods, splits humans into two, cutting their strength in half and doubling the numbers of worshipers. Genius, is it not? Right? Just more worshipers. Plato writes in his day that ever since then, in the pantheon, We've been searching for our missing half. And then Paul comes along and says the point of what we do with our bodies and marriage is not to find our missing half. It's actually to help each other. And you guys know very much here, very the egalitarian kind of vision in which we view marriage and even, I think it's important in our day, sexuality with a lot of crazy things in the Christian world that can be taught is to help each other become all that God has intended us to be. I love what uh, one of my favorites, Stanley Hauerwas is his name. He says that the Christian answer to this is that there's actually not two people that are compatible. He goes on and says this, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. He goes on, this moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Heather Fess, where are you? That's your moment. This is your moment. That's where you say, there's so much going on in your head. Okay, we'll, we'll talk later. We never know who we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is, he says, learning how to love and to care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. You're welcome on that one. 1 Corinthians 7. So here we go. We're in ancient kind of culture. It is common in this day and age just to sync up with all sorts of things sexually. It is common practice. This bleeds into the church. 
And Paul, like this is actually, I want you to catch really the beauty of this. All I can talk is about the beauty of this and leave it with you. I'm not here to try and convince any, anybody of anything. Just to simply show this, the Jesus way is a beautiful way. It's bigger and better, the, uh, it's bigger and better than the way ancient Greco-Roman culture thought, and it is much bigger and better than the way our culture thinks. Paul says, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 7, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband, listen, should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise to the wife to her husband the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, which is hard for people to hear, but yields it to her husband. But listen, it doesn't stop there. Most guys, men I hear teach on this, kind of don't say the next line. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. (laughs) (laughs) then come together that's just funny devote yourself to prayer yeah okay then come together so that satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control i say this as a concession not as a command i believe paul's way uh, and what he's trying to address is a very egalitarian way obviously uh, in the passages around marriage very much believe this that it's self-giving love towards each other, and the same in the context of sex and what the church does with their bodies. The beauty of it is, is giving ourselves to each other in this, in this context. And so as Paul is uh, instructing the churches, he goes on and says, listen, this, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Now here's the thing, ready? We can do whatever we want with our bodies right? Like, we all have agency in this room, right? To do whatever we want. But here's, here's where it comes with the general wisdom of the scriptures. The scriptures lead us into what is beautiful and true. And I think that's just an invitation for the world to say, hey, and again, as I read throughout how the church moved and functioned and what changed, changed the culture at that time, was what people were doing with their bodies in the context of marriage, how they treated each other, mutual submission to one another, and what they did with their stuff. And so there is something beautiful, I think, about this teaching that we just kind of need to lean into. Now, a little neuroscience, we're gonna go here just kind of as we wind down with a couple ideas. Just going to continue the neuroscience on. You know, I was uh, in a meeting this week with some other counselors, and we were talking about pornography, and just the epidemic in our moment around pornography, and treating that. You know, there's a lot to be said, obviously, about like what Paul is saying here around sexual immorality. But if you even take that out, the recent studies of what pornography does to our brains is it's crazy. I'm sitting in this meeting and they're, they're teaching about some of these, uh, the brain pathways and obviously the neuroplasticity of our brain. Our brain has a, a pleasure center within it that actually grows when porn is consumed. 
And the executive center, like we talked about last week, uh, our prefrontal cortex, guess what happens to that? It shrinks. Literally shrinks. That porn kind of like, it actually rewires our brain. One, one uh, kind of uh, counselor, I don't know how to describe her, basically had said, it takes two years of abstinence to recalibrate our brains after engaging in that just because of what our brains do. So you take like the spiritual stuff out at just like a, a, a brain science type level and you see what these things do. And I just wonder, you know, in the ways in which we're created and what Paul is saying here, if that again, what if we had a high view of sex and sexuality and the body? Yeah, what if we had that? and understood that one of the things we see throughout the scriptures is that the thing that's powerful enough to hold something as powerful as sex is marriage. So instead of saying like, don't do it, and like all the rules, what if it was painting the beauty of mutual submission towards one another, right? What we do with our bodies matters, and the call is, I think, beautiful in the sense of what we're called to and what Paul is saying here. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't just have a body, we are a body. And I think all of us in this room, no matter where you're at, it's not about like rules and coming down. Like I've heard, again, I've heard like the sex ed type sermons and it can be like cringeworthy. I just, what I want to do with our bodies, when we talk about our bodies, is paint the beautiful picture of what we have in this world and how we use our bodies. And I think Paul is onto something when he has a vision for the church. And we all have the ability to kind of lean into that vision or not. And I think it lies before us. And so all of us in this room kind of just need to think about, uh, I think, a few things. One, how we view our body, like we looked a few weeks ago. For some of us, it's the simple just wrestling with even when there's contention with our own bodies at times. And as we, for some of us, as we age and what this means the theology that we will have a body forever is so important. Trauma, right? What our experiences have done to our bodies. But then also what Jesus says and what the scriptures say about how we use our body. And my prayer is that Praxis would just be a place that could, could cultivate this in our moment and in our time when there's so much confusion and so much abuse that Again, for, in the context of marriage, that we can give ourselves to each other. And in a world that's consumed with technique and, and all this stuff, we are the people that just say we are called to each other, to lay our lives down in mutual submission towards each other. And we can actually regain the ideal of what we see in the garden, right? The ideal in the garden was a cod, knit together, drawn together. We can, we can live into this. So I did not want to go on with talking about the body, with talking about this. But I also believe God wants to lead us in this and how we use our bodies. And so come Holy Spirit. That's my prayer. Do your work among us. For some of us, maybe even in our own bodies, we feel things right now. I pray that you'd cast out shame, God. God, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for this church community. I thank you for what you're doing and speaking and saying. Help us in this area. 
We, God, are more than the sum of our urges. This is, this is us, God, as a community. Not swayed to and fro, but we have the ability, Jesus, by your spirit to live this out in beautiful ways. And so where there's brokenness, I pray, God, that you would bring healing. God, maybe where there's a lack of hope in this area, God, that you would bring hope. Bring your healing, I pray. I thank you, God, for your word, what you're speaking. I pray that you would open our hands and our hearts today to your love. And where there is brokenness, again, God, you'd bring healing like only you can. In all the ways we kind of disorient ourselves, God, bring healing. Do your work. In Jesus' name.